from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 23rd. Today, a princess and the president's lawyer, the latest on the impeachment inquiry, and sports stadiums in the time of climate change. What we have is a really unusual, strange story of an Emirati princess bumping into the president's personal attorney, Rudolph Giuliani, in a restaurant in Washington, D.C., it was one of those things that when I first started looking into it is something that I, you couldn't have made this up. This is Dalton Bennett. I'm a video reporter here at the Washington Post, but I work with the investigative unit. And Dalton has been working on this story that gives some insight into the Trump International Hotel in Washington and how it's seen by some people abroad as a portal to American power. The place to go if you want to meet U.S. officials and potentially enlist them to help you. But it all starts in a surprising place. The story began with an Instagram post. That's because Dalton has this thing that he does. Once in a while, he'll go on Instagram and he'll just search for posts from anyone who has tagged themselves at the Trump Hotel in D.C. And he'll just start scrolling. It is a wide range of images. You had people that were outside of the building that were supporters of Trump. You had people outside of the building taking pictures that were definitely not supporting the president. You had people inside of the of the actual hotel itself at the hotel bar or in the restaurant taking pictures with well-known people from the president's administration. So looking through all these images, what I eventually found and stumbled across was a picture of Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, sitting next to an Emirati princess. And first, the thing that immediately caught my eye is what the actual description of the picture was. It said, quote, Mr. Giuliani, an important lawyer, is currently helping me regain custody of my son. So I was looking at her Instagram feed to figure out exactly who she was. And I came across this video. My name is Hind Al-Qasmi. I'm an architect and a writer and a businesswoman and also a very angry mother at what, at what has been happening so far here in Qatar. Hind is actually a princess from the United Arab Emirates. She's from the Emirate of Sharjah. A few years ago, my son was kidnapped when he was seven years old from Raffles School in Dubai. So according to Hind, at some point her son is taken from school in the United Arab Emirates by her ex-husband and brought to Qatar without her permission. And, you know, we were unable to contact her ex-husband to sort out the details of that. And I still have his now expired passport. I was not allowed visitations. I was not even allowed to speak to my son. And I was blocked from all his social media. I have tried to reach out. I've tried to, a diplomatic action with the father. I've tried to be more accepting of what he might wish. But nothing, nothing that I have done has proved successful with the father. I have tried to do it through the Qatari courts, which have not been very responsive. And I am sad to say that all arbitration has failed and all the legal uh, routes have also been tried and they have all failed. I am asking for justice. So you saw this Instagram post and you realize that Giuliani had just basically started talking to this Emirati princess in the middle of the Trump Hotel. And so you decided to, 
to find her and call her and hear what it was like. Yeah, so, you know, I discovered this post and I thought it was unusual. I mean, it's not every day that you see somebody that says that they're an Emirati princess and that person is taking a picture with the president's personal lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani. So I reached out to her. You know, I didn't exactly know at first how to get in touch with her, but... Did you just like slide into her DMs? Yeah. So, you know, I looked at her. She's pretty active on social media. She's like 250,000 followers. So, I mean, I figured I'll just send her a message on Instagram and she responded. Now, in her telling, she had traveled to India some months beforehand and learned in diplomatic circles there, as she described it, that there are these events that take place at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., They said these events are a really great opportunity to meet people that are somehow connected to the administration or are part of the Republican Party and part of just the political establishment period here in Washington, D.C. that would might be able to help her with her case. She admitted that she didn't know a lot about the politics here in the U.S. and that she was just a concerned mother that was locked in this tough custody dispute. And she was trying to do anything that she could to get her son back. So she shows up at this event. So she catches a flight from Dubai, arrives in Washington, D.C. with the intention of attending an event at the Trump International Hotel that was organized by Virginia Women for Trump. And so according to her telling, while she's there, the day before the event starts, she is in the restaurant of the hotel and there sitting there is Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudolph Giuliani. She didn't know who he was at first. She just saw him sitting there. And a friend of hers who was traveling with her pointed out, hey, that's the president's lawyer. He might be somebody that might be able to help you out, right? She takes that information, internalizes it. After the event is when she first sits down to really talk to Rudolph Giuliani. And what does Giuliani do or say? I mean, he just, he's like, oh, yeah, of course I'll, I'll sit down with this princess from the United Arab Emirates. So according to Giuliani, you know, he he said that he initially thought Hen could be a paying client. But, you know, after spending some time talking to her, realized that he wouldn't be able to help. Giuliani had told her that now, since he was the president's attorney, that he wasn't able to lobby on her behalf, that he had to drop a lot of his foreign clients. But Giuliani offered to introduce her to some lawyers who might be able to help out with her case. And so how did that turn out? Like, was she able to find somebody who was a lawyer here who was able to help her? Ultimately, despite meeting with the president's personal attorney, despite meeting high-powered lawyers, business connections, contacts of Rudolph Giuliani, nothing becomes of all these meetings and this trip here to the United States. She's discouraged. She has to return to Doha, where she lives with her son, and she's still not able to leave the country to return to the United Arab Emirates, where she's originally from. But the interesting thing about it... you know, working on the story and one of the things that illuminated in some ways was that, you know, to people that are potentially overseas or to anybody, right, they realize that if they want to get the ear of somebody in the administration, if they wanted to lobby the administration on something they viewed as important, that the Trump International Hotel would be the place to do that. And to the extent that there is a connection to the impeachment inquiry, even if it's a somewhat tenuous connection, I, I think that one thing that we've heard about the president's potential efforts to pressure Ukraine into investigating a political rival. Like one of the things that we've heard from the reporting about that is that there were a lot of diplomats who felt like, hey, 
we're here, like our whole job as diplomats is supposed to be the go-between between the U.S. and these other countries. And yet people are talking to the president's private attorney and and these random people that like aren't really the official people who are supposed to be doing U.S. foreign policy. And it seems like this story about this one Emirati princess actually does say something significant about the fact that like maybe this is how the U.S. does foreign policy now is that you have someone showing up to the Trump Hotel talking to Rudy Giuliani and that's the way to get access to potential people in the U.S. who can do something. It makes you wonder, right? I mean, this is one person that tagged themselves in a picture with the president's personal attorney. Now, the real question I have is, are there other people out there that have shown up to Trump International Hotel or other locations that are viewed as somehow close to the president that have had the same goal, right? The, the goal of being able to get the ear of the administration. Now, this is just one case, right? I mean, ultimately, this was a person that just wanted to have somebody help out with their custody dispute. But are there others? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. I mean, you know, you have a person that is on the other side of the world that knew that if I went to this location, the Trump International Hotel, that I could potentially find somebody from the administration or connected to the administration that would be able to help them out with their particular case. We only know that because there's a picture that was posted. Dalton Bennett is a video reporter for The Post's investigative team. So the impeachment inquiry feels like it is in full swing right now. And a bunch of administration officials have been testifying on Capitol Hill. What was the main takeaway from Tuesday's closed-door hearing with Bill Taylor, the acting ambassador to Ukraine. Bill Taylor's testimony was the one we've been waiting for for a very long time. Aaron Blake is a reporter for the Post-Politics blog, The Fix. And Democrats are hailing this as a complete game-changer. The evidence of wrongdoing by Donald Trump is hiding in plain sight. They're talking about how when he delivered his statement, there were gasps and sighs in the hearing room. The arrows continue to point in only one direction. It really sounds like this was the moment that Democrats thought they finally had their true smoking gun in this investigation. It's not even noon, right? And this is the my most disturbing day in Congress so far. The testimony that we've seen from Tuesday, which to this point is basically his 15-page opening statement, confirms he suspected there was quid pro quos, that shady things were happening, and also that he was privy to some of them. I think the biggest upshot here is that Bill Taylor is not just talking about the idea that military aid was being withheld for leverage or that a meeting was being withheld for leverage. He actually described how this was communicated to Ukrainian officials, which would be understood at least to Ukraine as a potential quid pro quo. I also think it's helpful in understanding Taylor's testimony and the significance of it. It's helpful to go back and get a better sense of who he is and what his background was before he was asked to do this job. Some of the irony here is that Bill Taylor is only in this position because of what was thought to be a political effort to remove the former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, 
after she was removed by the State Department early, Bill Taylor, who is a former ambassador to Ukraine from the Bush administration, who has intimate knowledge of this country, was basically picked as the temporary replacement. Not a full-time ambassador. He was not confirmed, but he is somebody who was selected by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to basically fill the gap. Taylor also describes in his testimony when he was asked to take on this job uh, that he expressed some reservations about what the policy towards Ukraine was going to be in the Trump administration. He even expressed some reservations about what Rudy Giuliani was up to in Ukraine, but that he ultimately was persuaded to take the job. And so if Taylor had all these concerns when he was coming to the job, what did he find out when he actually got into the job? Well, it sounds like it confirmed some of his worst fears here. Uh, He talked earlier about how he thought Giuliani was maybe up to no good there. He said that once he took the job, quote, there appeared to be two channels of U.S. policymaking and implementation, one regular and one highly irregular. He's not the first person to point to the idea that there was some kind of shadow diplomacy taking place that involved Rudy Giuliani and certain members of the administration, mostly political appointees. But he really crystallizes the idea that things were being handled in one channel and were being obscured from other channels. He notes at several points that there was a phone call in which Kurt Volker, a special envoy to Ukraine, talked about how he didn't want to have interagency people on the call because he was worried about there being a transcript. He also notes how after the president's July 25th call with the Ukrainian president, the the call that we now have the rough transcript of, he, as the top U.S. official in Ukraine, was not given a readout of what took place on that phone call, which is pretty remarkable for somebody in his position. And so he seems to be concluding that that was an intentional effort to obfuscate what was happening in this kind of shadow diplomacy channel with Ukraine. He may not have said it in so many words, but that was the undeniable implication of everything that he testified to on Tuesday. He basically suggested that this was calculated, that it was communicated, that it was explicit, that nothing about it was terribly subtle, which is something that we hadn't really seen from previous witnesses who maybe suggested that something untoward was happening, but couldn't necessarily point to it being by design or couldn't necessarily point to it having been communicated to Ukraine. And if this all goes back to the central idea of whether there was an explicit quid pro quo between the president and Ukraine and trying to get them to investigate Joe Biden, what was the evidence or the incidents that Taylor outlined that appeared to support the idea that there was a quid pro quo? The most important exchange that he describes is a phone call that he had with Tim Morrison. Morrison was the, the head of the Eurasia desk on the National Security Council, somebody intimately familiar with what's happening in this region. And he said that Morrison recounted a conversation that Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU, had with Andrei Yermak, a top aide to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, in Warsaw. He said that Sondland had told Yermak that the security assistance money, that's the hundreds of millions of dollars that the Trump administration was withholding from Ukraine at this time, would not come until Zelensky committed to pressure his officials to investigate Burisma, which was the company that employed Hunter Biden. If this is an accurate recounting of the conversation Sondland had with 
a top Ukrainian official, this would be by far the most explicit communication of the quid pro quo. It's one thing to withhold security assistance. It's one thing to say, hey, wouldn't you like a meeting with President Trump? It's another thing to say, oh, by the way, these things are conditioned upon you doing X, Y, Z and having that X, Y, Z be something that is pretty transparently political and beneficial for President Trump personally. And this recounting from from Taylor's testimony, how have we seen Trump and the White House and Republican lawmakers respond to it? Well, Republicans have generally focused on process objections. They've talked about how these hearings and depositions are not open, how uh, government counsel is not allowed to be next to these witnesses. The few who have actually weighed in on the substance of what Bill Taylor has said haven't been able to put a terribly good face on it. I think the most telling comment we saw was from Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, the number two ranking Republican in the Senate, who basically conceded that according to what Bill Taylor said, and of course what Bill Taylor said has to be corroborated, that this looks bad for the White House. But there are still more administration officials that are scheduled to come up on the Hill and to give their testimony in these closed-door hearings. What can we expect from that, and what are the questions that they might be able to answer? I think the suggestions are that there were lots of people who were aware of these conversations. The fact that Tim Morrison was relaying this conversation that Gordon Sondland had with a top Ukrainian official to Bill Taylor suggests that there were people who were aware of the content of that conversation. Uh, Those people would need to be testifying, would need to be corroborating what Bill Taylor said. And to the extent that they did and to the extent that they nailed down the idea that this military aid was explicitly tied to investigations that are politically helpful for President Trump, that would pretty much obliterate the entire defense that the Republicans started with here, which was, well, maybe, yeah, military aid was withheld. Yeah, they were kind of playing hardball about getting a meeting with the president, but it was never explicit. There was no actual corrupt quid pro quo. If those things can be tied together rather than being separate, and maybe there just have been something of an implicit understanding here, if it was directly communicated, that's pretty much a worst case scenario for President Trump here, because that's exactly what the whistleblower initially described as people being concerned about in the complaint. I think what we're going to see, though, is the White House try and chip away at that argument and basically try and undermine the idea that this was inherently corrupt, even if they were pushing for these specific investigations. I think that one of the big concerns that Democrats had for a long time about the prospect of trying to impeach the president was that this whole process could become very political and could start to look politically motivated. I'm wondering if you feel like things have started to get political, that you have really seen this be a Democrats versus Republicans conflict. There is no question that this has gotten extremely political. It was never going to be any other way. And I think you saw that most pronounced in what happened a few hours ago when a bunch of House Republicans effectively stormed the deposition room where these depositions were taking place. I'm gathered here with dozens of my congressional colleagues. And raised concerns about how things were being handled. There was apparently quite a scene. There was concerns about these members having brought 
cell phones into what is supposed to be a secured area and raising concerns about what that might mean. And, and when you say stormed, I mean, like, basically literally stormed. Like, literally, a bunch of them showed up unannounced and pushed their way in, even though they weren't allowed to be there. Because if behind those doors they intend to overturn the results of an American presidential election, we want to know what's going on. Literally 30 people who announce we are going to go in here and raise concerns. We are going to force our way in. We're going to go and see if we can get inside. So let's, uh, let's see if we can get And they essentially did that, delaying the testimony of a key witness, Laura Cooper, for a while. Laura Cooper is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Her main role in this investigation is as the person who understood the withholding of military aid to Ukraine, the hundreds of millions of dollars that were withheld in August and early September. This crystallizes how contentious this is going to be. I think as the evidence has gotten worse for the administration, there is a bigger premium on doing things like this to to politicize it, essentially. Certainly the best thing you can do when uh, the evidence is going against you is to raise concerns about the process. And that seems to be the chief argument for Republicans right now. And so what we saw Wednesday was was very much geared towards that. It's all about undermining the people who are in charge of this. It's all about focusing the lens on them rather than the actual evidence. It doesn't mean that some of the the arguments that they make about the process aren't valid, but it is a, a very strategic effort to, to focus this on other things. And I think that's where we're going to see more and more of from Republicans moving forward. Aaron Blake is a political writer for The Fix. Now, one more thing from Rick Mace, a sports reporter for The Post. So we've been spending the year exploring how climate change is going to impact our sports world. And for this one, we really wanted to look at the way rising sea levels are going to impact not just the sports world, but kind of the economics that, that keep the sports world afloat. So when it comes to rising sea levels, we're usually talking years or decades down the road, but that's something that teams and leagues have to plan for now. And there really is no consensus right now about how high these these water levels might actually rise. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says maybe three feet by the end of the century. The United States Army Corps of Engineers predicts as much as five. So the lack of an easy, digestible prediction makes it a little bit hard for teams, engineers, and architects to plan for the future. But the Oakland Athletics is facing the dilemma head on, and they're designing a stadium that they hope can withstand waters that rise two feet, five feet, or even 10 feet. You know, it's just kind of the way you have to look at uh, addressing these things in this day and age. That's just kind of the reality of it. We went to Oakland and met with the team president, Dave Cavill, and he is kind of the one spearheading the entire project. I mean, we're hoping this thing is like Fenway or Wrigley, because if it's Fenway or Wrigley, this thing is going to be viable for, you know, 50 years or more. I mean, our current stadium is 60 years old, right? Now it's getting a little long in the tooth, but yeah. So now we're going on Howard Terminal, we're on it. So they settled on a site called Howard Terminal, and it's a former shipping area. It's right on the water. Um, they they want to build the, the stadium right there so the fans have this beautiful view and this uh, incredible backdrop. So it's pre- pretty cool concept. I'm just going to park right here. We can walk around. That means they have to account for the changes in the sea level that are going to be coming down the road. And this is the Oakland Estuary. So this is a this is an active water. 
spoke with Richard Kennedy. He's an urban designer who's working on the project. To develop on the waterfront in San Francisco Bay Area, you have to demonstrate that at a minimum, you are protected and building sensibly for mid-century, at a minimum. But you then also have to demonstrate how you can adapt for the end-of-century elevations. So the ballpark would be surrounded by about 100 feet of green space. So it'd be a beautiful park for fans to walk in. But down the road, they can do things with that land. They can create berms. They can create steps. The whole planning, regulatory design community is gearing towards more adaptive ideas. And landscape in the form of parks and waterfronts is the easiest way to do that because it's green, it's soft, it's very flexible to rebuild, remake. Right. Because we don't know exactly how this is going to play out, how, how much the, the bay is going to rise in this instance or what is going to rise. If sea levels rise just five or six feet, let's consider just some of the sports facilities in the United States that could be in danger of flooding. There's TD Garden Arena in Boston, City Field in New York, MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. And that's not even getting into Florida. If we look at Florida, if levels reach five feet, the playing field at the Jacksonville Jaguars Stadium would be underwater. Trump National Doral Golf Course would be flooded. And water would be seeping through the front door at American Airlines Arena in downtown Miami. It's a huge industry, and we're hearing more and more that teams and leagues are starting to think about some of the issues that could be waiting down the road. Rick Meese is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You may recall a little joke I made in the credits last week about Nobel Prize winning research on cryo-electron microscopy and the fact that I did not know what that is. Thank you to the many, many people who reached out to inform me. Cryo-electron microscopy is actually pretty cool and very interesting. As always, feel free to tweet at me with your thoughts on stuff that you hear on the podcast. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.